Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Another big story this week was that of President Trump's tax returns. The New York Times obtained nearly two decades worth of those returns and found out that he only paid $750 in taxes in 2016 and the same in 2017. And for several years prior to that, he paid no taxes. While President Trump paints himself as a successful businessman, several of his properties and business ventures were money losers. For more on how the president used the tax code to his benefit, we'll speak to David Farenthold, reporter at The Washington Post. I think there's probably three major takeaways. One is that he's paid very little federal income tax, at least in the last few years. The Times said even before he paid $750 a year, and many previous years he paid nothing at all because his businesses had such great big losses. That's one thing. He's paid very little federal income tax. Two, his businesses are doing quite poorly. This was an unprecedented look into the arc of Trump's finances. And what the Times found was that he'd been very successful playing a businessman on TV, on The Apprentice. He made a ton of money from The Apprentice and then basically squandered it, trying to be in real life the person he'd been on TV, trying to be the investor and shrewd businessman that he was supposed to be. He blew a lot of his money on golf courses and hotels that are deeply in the red and have never made money. And the third thing is that there is a huge financial crunch coming for Trump and his business in the next few years. That's because he has a lot of properties that are losing money and they were losing money before COVID hit. Now they're probably losing more money. And those properties, some of them have really large unpaid loans on them that are going to come due in the next few years. So he's got huge loans to pay and the properties that those loans are on, not only are they not generating enough profit to pay the loan, they're not even generating a profit. It really does seem that the president's biggest asset was his brand, that brand as a businessman and and successful and all that, whether it was true or not underneath, it didn't really matter. As you mentioned, when he made all that money off of The Apprentice, that was kind of his second lifeline and really propelled him, really made a lot of money for him there too. But again, you know, still, this is a big tax game. So I wanted to ask, is any of this illegal in any way? We know there's a lot of loopholes and maneuvering that he was doing, but anything that amounts to being something that could be illegal? From reading the Times story, we don't know enough to say that any of it is illegal. The Times says that there is at least one element of his taxes that he has been embroiled in a long fight with the IRS about whether it was legal. Basically, in 2010, Trump asked the IRS for a $73 million tax refund. And I didn't know this is how it worked. The IRS just gave him the $73 million. (laughs) And then after it had paid him the money, then went back to figure out whether it was right to have given him the money. So they've been fighting for nine or 10 years now about whether his claim on that refund was correct. Other things that the Times mentioned that seem to perhaps reach the boundaries of tax law, we don't know that the IRS is investigating any of it. And the little bit that I know about taxes, it's really hard to say whether something is is violated the law unless you know every single detail. And even then, sometimes you need a tax court to tell you. You mentioned that $72 million uh, tax refund that he got. That's that audit that he's constantly been talking about, why he can't release his tax returns because he's been fighting with them for that for 10 years. That's a long time just to be going through that one audit. So how does he do these things? You know, a lot of people might be saying, hey, well, I'm paying my taxes every year. I'm paying more than the $750. A lot of what I'm kind of seeing is, you know, he is claiming that he's losing more that he's making on properties and business ventures. And this really allows him to get away with that. There are some other sort of things, the particular maneuvers that seem to be 
perhaps questionable legally, but the main thing he does that makes him able to pay very little taxes, he just loses a lot of money. He owns golf courses and hotels that lose money hand over fist every year, and that those losses you know, erase gains he's maybe made from other properties and allow him to reduce his tax bill to nothing or close to it. Another thing that he also does is claim certain properties as investment properties. One was Seven Springs in Westchester County, New York. The family has said they spent a lot of time there, but that's listed as an investment property, so he can get taxes back on that. There's also mm-hmm. been uh, consulting fees that seem to, some uh, some consulting fees seem to have been paid to some of his family members. That's right. There, there was a, apparently on some big business deals when Trump would get paid you know, millions of dollars for a licensing fee, say, for an overseas Trump hotel he would count some of that licensing fee as quote-unquote consulting fees and then write it off as a business expense. The Times says that, at least in some cases, those consulting fees actually went to his own family members who were, at the time, also paid salaried members of the Trump organization. So, like, Ivanka Trump was both a Trump executive working on the Trump Hotel and also being paid as an independent consultant to the same deal. The Times raised a couple of instances in which this could be used as a tax dodge, but it's hard to know if this violated any laws unless you really knew the nitty-gritty of it. Democrats are using this as an opportunity to say, we need to know everything about his finances now. As you mentioned, there's a lot of debt that's coming soon, a lot of debt that he needs to pay off that is coming soon in in different forms or fashion. You do cover President Trump as part of looking into the conflicts of interest. I had seen that raised a lot in the last couple of days since we got this reporting. What possible conflicts of interest can we see from the New York Times report? Put yourself in the shoes of, say, you're at the CIA and you're thinking about hiring somebody to be a CIA agent, somebody you're going to give classified information to, trust them to sort of keep the nation's secrets. And that person you're interviewing says, well, look, I own a huge number of real estate properties. All of them are losing money or a lot of them are losing money. I have huge loans coming due in the next couple of years, and I don't know how I'm going to be able to pay off the loans on my property. So I'm under a huge amount of financial stress right now. Would you hire a person like that to hold classified information? You might not because you recognize their vulnerability to conflicts of interest. Somebody could come in and say, listen, I'll make your financial problems go away if you help me. Now, we're talking about the president of the United States and who's potentially the most informed, the biggest holder of classified secrets in our government. And if Trump is under that kind of financial leverage where he might be extremely grateful to somebody who would extend the term of his loan, give him some financial help so he can get out of this financial situation. What kind of leverage would that person or that government or that company have over the president if they could bail him out of a fix like that? So I think it's helpful to think about this in terms of hiring. You're hiring somebody for a job. What does it mean that they have this kind of leverage hanging over their head? Obviously, this will be talked about all the way up until the election. I'm curious to see, obviously, first, how much it will impact that. I know a lot of voters have already made up their mind and President Trump's base are crazy about him. They love him so much. So I'm curious how that effect will come true. And then to see if we'll be able to find out how much the taxpayers have actually poured into President Trump's properties. Because whenever he goes to his properties, you know, he brings Secret Service, they rent rooms out there. So there's going to be a number that might come out from that as well. When we're working on that part of the story ourselves, it's been really, really hard to get the government and the Trump organization to to answer a simple question, which is how much government money, taxpayer money, has been paid to the president's property since he took office. Now that we know from the Times that a lot of his properties are sucking wind financially, it becomes an even more important question. How much of our tax dollars have been paid into the president's businesses? We found at least $1.1 million worth of such payments. But I think that's the tip of the iceberg because so many of the agencies that do business with Trump's properties haven't released their records yet. So I'm hopeful that between now and the election, that 1.1 million number will grow 
So maybe really get in the ballpark of the actual total. David Farenhold, reporter at the Washington Post covering President Trump's business and conflicts of interest. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Next, an update on how vaccine development is going. Some coronavirus vaccine trial participants are starting to speak out about their experience so far, and they're reporting some side effects, fever, body aches, exhaustion. But they say that these side effects didn't last more than a day, and in the end, were worth it. These people were participating in Moderna and Pfizer's trials and said that they got more side effects after getting that second dose. For more on how these participants felt after getting their shots, we'll speak to Berkeley Lovelace, healthcare reporter at CNBC. Moderna and Pfizer are both leading in the late-stage testing for two vaccines. And so we spoke with five participants. Three are in Moderna's study and two are in Pfizer's. Um, And yeah, as you said, they're reporting high fever, body aches, bad headaches. A couple of them said they're experiencing day-long exhaustion. One participant said that they should probably tell people to maybe take the shot or the second dose on Friday just because they may feel exhausted for the next day and may not want to go to work. This isn't uncommon for vaccines. Vaccines commonly have side effects. Uh, Some vaccines are actually more unpleasant than others. But yeah, we're now just hearing from a few people in in the late stage trials what they've been experiencing. Some are more intense than others. But I think the main thing is just now making it known and making it public so people are aware before they're going potentially go to get these doses or shots. Yeah, Moderna just actually came out with some news earlier in the week saying that they're probably not going to seek approval for their vaccine until at least November 25th at the earliest and widespread distribution won't come until next spring. So there's still a lot left to go and make sure these things are safe and effective and all. Both of these are two shot protocols, right? Right, that's correct. There is one that's in development and late stage testing that's one shot. That's uh, Johnson & Johnson. But both Moderna and Pfizer, they're going to require two shots. So you're going to have to take one shot and then probably come back a month later to get the second dose. And what a lot of these participants are experiencing, the way you said, the first shot, you'll maybe get a few symptoms here and there, but that second one kind of puts you down for a little minute. Is this a matter of dosing or this late in the stage in these clinical trials, have they already kind of determined what the dosing is going to be already? There were a few vaccines where in the early stage they were testing higher doses and people were having more severe reactions. It's not entirely clear whether or not this has to do with the dosing. It appears that a lot of the people we spoke with said the first dose was pretty easy. They may have experienced a mild headache or like had a little bit of nausea. But after the second dose, that's when they really started feeling more of these intense symptoms. And so it appears the addition of the booster shot is creating these maybe more severe symptoms. Um, It's also important to note that because this is a double-blind study where the patients don't know what treatment they got, they could either have gotten a placebo or a vaccine, it's possible that their symptoms could be an unrelated illness or they got the placebo or possibly just a reaction to a placebo. But some of the symptoms, for example, one of them had a fever of over 104. That's likely not a placebo effect and probably something either a result of an illness or from the vaccine. The participants that you spoke to all said these side effects are short-lived and they all feel like it's worth going through this. And the inconveniences and short-term illness that you could get is kind of worth it all if in the long run you are protected more from the actual virus. The people we spoke with really wanted this to work. None of them identified as anti-vaxxers. They were all very pro-vaccine 
A lot of them joined this because they wanted to help in the process of developing a vaccine as quickly as possible. And all of them said that the symptoms were kind of worth it for the chance of this potentially being protective against the coronavirus. But yeah, they did say that a lot of these symptoms lasted about a day, sometimes less, and the symptoms varied among them, but many of them could be pretty intense for a few hours. It is about messaging and educating the public. They should know that these companies are going through the pains to make sure these are safe before they roll anything out. That's also why the drug makers have gone out of their way to say that they will not submit for emergency use authorization or approvals until they feel that they have a data set that shows that the vaccines are safe and effective. Also, one of the people we spoke with who's in the trial also said that they spoke out just because they felt like the message needed to get out there beforehand, not that these vaccines were in any way dangerous, but they wanted to let people know that this is what something that you could expect if you get a, a vaccine just so they know going in. And so I think the messaging has just been very important, especially because I know a lot of infectious disease experts and scientists have been a little bit uneasy based off of the messaging from the U.S. government calling the program Operation Warp Speed and labeling it as like a race and finalist. That type of language can make people uneasy and make it seem like people are cutting corners uh, in the development process. And I know that the scientists working on this and the drug makers always make clear that that's not the case. Berkeley Lovelace, healthcare reporter at CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Finally, for this week, we'll talk a little bit about Operation Warp Speed and just how involved the military is. Operation Warp Speed is a $10 billion initiative, and it's going to pose a huge logistical undertaking once a vaccine is finally approved. And the benefits of having so many in the military involved is they're good at complex logistical issues. For more on who's involved in the leadership in this project, we'll speak to Nicholas Florco, Washington correspondent at Stat News. Stat obtained this internal organizational chart for Operation Warp Speed, which to remind folks is its initiative to create and develop and distribute 300 million doses of a coronavirus vaccine by January. As you mentioned, the biggest takeaway here is really how intimately tied the military is to this effort, much more so actually than previously disclosed. So the chart we obtained lists roughly 60 officials from the military and the Department of Defense writ large. And it only contains less than 30 people who actually have a background in healthcare, many of whom work at the Department of Health and Human Services. So this is really notable because it's a serious departure from past precedent. You know, in the H1N1 pandemic of 2009, for example, the CDC led the effort to distribute vaccines and the military was virtually absent from the whole initiative. So this is a really striking difference from how we've handled these sorts of things in the past. This is a $10 billion initiative, and we all know how important this is. We're waiting for this vaccine so that hopefully we can start returning back to normal. But as you mentioned, distribution of vaccines and things like that have been done in the past by the CDC. But this is a huge undertaking. We have a lot of different companies that the government is working with and funding, you know, the potential for hundreds of thousands, millions of vaccines to be distributed. So this is where the expertise of the military actually comes into play and, and is a benefit. Yeah, absolutely. So folks that are defending this initiative and the way it's structured make a really strong argument for the military being involved. So they note, for example, when we take H1N1, that was a much smaller pandemic. And they, frankly, the issues that we're dealing with now, the CDC has never been used to. So for example, we're having the military flying in materials from around the world to start manufacturing these vaccines before they're ever approved. We have the military quite literally guarding trucks full of vaccines to ensure that there aren't 
attacks from state actors here. So there's clearly issues here that the military has a lot of expertise in dealing with that the CDC, quite frankly, doesn't. And that's why defenders of the system say we need to bring in the military here. This has never been done before. We need their expertise. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is going to be the largest vaccine operation ever undertaken, really. Who are some of the top people then? Who are we looking at as the top leaders for Operation Warp Speed? So the two folks that people might be familiar with are Monsef Slawi. He is the chief advisor here. He's a vaccine expert. He used to be a GlaxoSmithKline, which is one of the largest vaccine makers. And he is sort of the civilian science lead on this whole project. And then the CEO is a four-star army general by the name of Gustav Perna. And he is really sort of the army's top logistics guy. He previously ran Army Material Command, which sort of deals with all of the logistics related to the military. You know, he is actually in the Army's Logistics Hall of Fame. He did a lot of work on the surge in Afghanistan in 2009. He's sort of the guy who knows how to get all the pieces of the military working together. So those two are the top leaders. And those are the folks that folks might be familiar with. They were the ones that were with the president during the rollout of this whole initiative. But we and our story actually go much deeper than that. So I'm um, just to highlight one person that I find really fascinating is a man named Matt Hepburn. He's an army doctor. He is actually coordinating the vaccine development portion of Operation Warp Speed. And prior to doing that, he actually spent six years at DARPA, which is this military-aligned organization that works on high-tech projects. They actually played a role in creating the internet. And Matt has actually made a point throughout his career of talking about how science can prevent pandemics from ever occurring. He worked on this big project to develop treatments for pandemics within 60 days of them first being created. So these are the sorts of issues that he's always thought about and has publicly spoken about. And now he's actually leading this effort to sort of coordinate all the vaccine makers who are involved in Operation Warp Speed. And that's another interesting thing, too, because you hear, oh, there's a lot of military personnel involved in all of this. But the actual people that are still developing the vaccines, the vast majority of these scientists and people that are working on this, they're associated with the companies that are developing those vaccines. So Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, all the other ones that are in development right now. So one of the quotes that you had in here is that there's no science being done inside Operation Warp Speed. They're just coordinating everywhere else so that when something does get approved, we're ready to go. Yeah, it was a really interesting point that the Department of Health and Human Services made in response to this. The chart, when you look at it at first, it looks out of balance. There's a huge amount of military folks, not that many folks working on the science side, but they made that good point that a lot of that science work is being done at the companies. And I also want to point out, though, that there are some really key vaccine experts who are also involved in this initiative who are employed by the government. So it's not like there's no one on the vaccine side, quite the contrary. Right. And two folks that we highlight in our stories are John Mascola and Larry Corey. And these are two of the most famous HIV researchers in the world. John actually heads the Vaccine Research Center at the National Institutes of Health. And Larry works at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. And they're both actually coordinating the clinical trials portion of Operation Warp Speed. Nicholas Florco, Washington correspondent at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.